Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The final funeral arrangements are being made for Queen Elizabeth II. Heads of state from all over the world are expected to the service Monday as her body makes its final journey from Westminster Abbey to Windsor Castle. The Queen's death is a time of reflection on the meaning and legacy of her and the rest of the royal family. The British heads of state carry both reverence and disdain from an indigenous perspective. We'll have that discussion coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Leaders on the Navajo Nation report progress and efforts to clean up hundreds of abandoned uranium mines on and near the reservation. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, federal officials recently traveled to the area for a firsthand view of the decades-long issue. U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan met with tribal officials in Cameron, Arizona on the Navajo Nation. During the trip, he announced the creation of two federal field offices in the tribal capital Window Rock and in Flagstaff, Arizona, that'll work with the Navajo EPA to facilitate the mine cleanup and removal of radioactive waste. U.S. EPA officials also say they're working to conduct assessments and prioritize the more than 300 abandoned uranium mines that haven't yet received funding for remediation. According to Navajo President Jonathan Nez's office, Regan also visited an abandoned uranium mine site located within feet of occupied homes. The effort to clean up the more than 500 abandoned uranium mines on and near the Navajo Nation has been ongoing for years, and only a handful have been fully remediated. The tribe says about 200 sites currently have funds available for work, but progress has been slow. Tribal leaders describe the legacy of uranium mining on the Navajo Nation as devastating, causing decades of negative environmental and health impacts among residents and former mine workers. Between 1944 and 1986, 30 million tons of uranium ore was extracted from the area to support the Manhattan Project and Cold War-era nuclear weapons development. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. A new partnership between Black Hill State and the Indian University of North America expands a student support program. This summer, it gave 25 undergrads a chance to jumpstart their college careers. South Dakota Public Broadcasting C.J. Keen has more. The 7th Gen Summer Program prepares Native students for success in college. Joshua Rudnick is director of the Indian University at Crazy Horse Memorial. He says the program helps teenagers take the next step. 7th Gen Summer Program here at Crazy Horse is for high school students who are who have just graduated and looking to move into higher education. During the summer, they participate in their first semester of, of college. They earn 12 credits. Uh, those are general education. Education credits. Along with classes, students live on a small campus and work a credit-eligible internship at the Memorial. Rudnick says the experience goes beyond the classroom. So it's a busy summer, uh, not only with the classes, but uh, the 20 hours that they that they work. In addition to the classes and the internship, we also have a co-curricular program that that seeks to kind of explore these culturally significant sites here in the Black Hills. Rudnick says the new partnership will provide some Black Hills State professors for classes and help students connect. Well, if you're looking into getting into college, our program is a, is a good start. 
not only do we provide your first semester of college with those 12 credits, but we also uh, have a pretty strong student advising and student success team that will help guide you through the process of entering college. Applications are closed for the summer 2023 program. Rudnick expects them to reopen in coming months. For National Native News in Rapid City, I'm CJ Keen. Tribal leaders were among those to join President Biden for a celebration of the Inflation Reduction Act on the White House lawn this week. The president signed the bill last month. The new law authorizes funding, including tribal-specific funding, to address climate issues and energy. It also seeks to lower health care costs and tax high-income people and large corporations. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media's ninth biennial Vision Maker Film Festival, celebrating together. The Vision Maker Film Festival will present five weeks of indigenous films at visionmakermedia.org, October 10th to November 11th, 2022. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Legions of people around the world are mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth II. During her 70-year-long tenure as queen, the monarchy made attempts to reconcile relationships with former colonies as they asserted their independence from the British Empire. As many mourn are passing, though, others are re-examining the violent and painful history the British monarchy represents, especially with indigenous people across the world. For some, the royal family cannot be separated from the long history of imperialism and genocide encompassing North America, Africa, Australia, and elsewhere. Today we'll take a look back at the history of the British monarchy from an indigenous perspective. What should we expect from the newly crowned King Charles III? We want to hear from you. Are you a fan of the British royal family? Is anyone in your tribal community talking about Queen Elizabeth, King Charles, or any other royal family members? You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also leave a comment on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Our Twitter handle is 180099native. Give us a call. Our producers are standing by. Our phone lines are open right now. Our first guest is joining us from British Columbia in Canada. Adam Olson is a member of the Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands. He's a member of the Sartlip First Nation. Adam, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you for having me this morning. Well, Adam, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners. Many of our listeners are down here in the States. And could you help frame our show by providing an overview of the role of the British monarchy and specifically the royal family there in Canada? Well, um, I guess that the, the simplest way to say it is that the uh, we are a constitutional monarchy, and um, the uh, the royal family, the crown, is our head of state. 
So unlike in the United States where you have uh, an elected head of state, we have uh, this family that, um, that we've inherited from our long relationship with, uh, with Britain. Um, obviously not as uh, long a relationship as we've had with this, these lands and waters. Uh, and my, my, um, my ancestors have been here for a lot longer than, uh, than the relationship with, the, with England. But as the country, Canada, and all of the provinces, and we're in British Columbia here on the, on the far, far west coast, um, uh, the, uh, in our legislature uh, where I sit, uh, in, in our, uh, we have a lieutenant governor that is the representative of the, of the monarchy, of, of the family, and uh, all the laws that we pass in our, uh, in our house uh, have to have what we call royal assent, meaning uh, the representative of the crown uh, has to give final approval of them. So the the head of state in our country is is uh, the family. Okay, they're the head of state. So uh, help us out here. Who essentially then has more power um, with regard to just everyday affairs there in Canada, and especially with Indigenous folks? Would it be the crown, or would it be the prime minister and and the established government there in Canada? So uh, the well, I mean, I think it's, it's very fair to say that the uh, that the crown um, plays a um, the the crown the crown doesn't uh, I don't think I've seen it I know I haven't seen it since I got elected and I don't think that it's happened where the crown doesn't give assent to what the people the elected people want to do uh, you know uh, the laws that they pass. Uh, however, the lieutenant governor does play a bit of a referee role when it comes to elections and the transfer of power um it goes it goes through that person they they recognize the elections uh and so you know on a on a day-to-day basis um the crown doesn't have doesn't do much uh in in terms of uh you know practical work uh however it is the source of power and authority i think um one of the one of the leaders in another party in another part of the country said you know that it's a it's, uh, the power and authority that's in the crown is a, is a fiction, and there's also a function to it. I thought that was an interesting way of, of uh, describing it. But the, the reality of it is is that um, mostly the work that we do is, as elected officials uh, is supported. However, when it comes to elections, we had an example of this in 2017, uh, where the vote was so close that, uh, that members, uh, the leaders of various political parties were going and meeting with the lieutenant governor, and the lieutenant governor actually had a decision to make, which was, uh, you know, going to determine um, how the uh, election results uh, played out in the, in the legislature. So um, mostly the, the crown is a symbol, symbol of power and authority, uh, one that's been exerted uh, in, in uh, terrifying ways uh, at times in our history, and in fact, uh, many times in our history. Um, but uh, but it is it is uh, um, not uh, engaged in a in kind of a regular the everyday business of of Canadians or British Columbians. Okay, so uh, the crown that role uh, fiction and function I think that's really helpful and so let's talk a little bit more uh, about the Queen and her seventy year reign uh, and its impact on Indigenous populations. There, uh, can you point to some positive things that the Queen has done for Indigenous peoples in Canada? And then also, where did she fall short? Um, well, I mean, I think uh, that's a tough question. Uh, as someone who has grown up on an on an Indian reserve 
uh, in our country and uh, who is, you know, um, intensely indigenous people in our country are intensely politicized and uh, the relationship with the crown and, and the and the crown governments that are essentially operating on behalf of uh, of that power and, and authority that uh, that came over here with those ships uh, from Europe uh, several hundred years ago. And in, in British Columbia, it was only 170 years ago. We were very, very uh, – um, it, it hasn't – it's not a long history in British Columbia like it is in other parts of the country as you go further east. You know, I would say that um, one of the things about uh, Queen Elizabeth is it's a pretty remarkable feat to be uh, in the role that she was in for 70 years. And so as she is passing, you know, I know that there's a very complex relationship that exists uh, here in Canada. Um, there's uh, lots of strong feelings on all sides. And as we've been taught by our elders, uh, it's very important to uh, be respectful and uh, to recognize that, uh, a matriarch, um, uh, the, the head of a family, has passed, and in that uh, in that moment, we pay respect uh, to those people, and we and we do it in a, as dignified a way as we possibly can. We also recognize with this particular family that um, a lot of uh, a lot of what's happened uh, in our country, a lot of the laws that have been made to disadvantage Indigenous people, to separate them, to separate us uh, from our lands and our and our resources uh, have been done in the name of this family. And so uniquely, uh, uniquely uh, in our country, we're having this conversation where we're paying respect to uh, the queen who, who, who uh, for 70 years uh, served in that role, uh, but we also are necessarily recognizing that it is uh, also a time that uh, that in a, in, a, in an era of reconciliation that we've been in in Canada, um, it, it is important that we have the necessary conversations about uh, the role that that family has played, the, the role that that, uh, that, that title uh, has has played uh, in the years uh, before and, and um, what it is that we're going to do to actually truly reconcile in the years going ahead. So now uh, the Queen has passed. King Charles III has uh, has taken the throne. So going forward, um, what would you like to see from the royal family? And, and again, you know, you mentioned this legacy of colonialism and oppression. And even though it's, it's relatively new there in British Columbia, only 170 years ago that that contact was made. What do you want to see? What do you want to see, Adam, going forward from the from the royal family? Well, we just recently uh, experienced a visit from uh, from the Pope, and um, the Pope came on a on a tour, uh, a reconciliation tour, I would say, an apology tour uh, here in our country, and it was um, it uh, you know it stirred up in me a lot of uh, a lot of emotions, and I know it stirred up for a lot of our relatives, uh, our Indigenous brothers and sisters and cousins, uh, aunties and uncles across the country. It it uh, stirred up a lot of emotions. A lot of memories of their time in residential and day schools that were run by the Catholic Church, and uh, the Pope came to apologize for the abuses that uh, the abuses that um, that uh, his institution um, brought uh, onto Indigenous peoples. And I think, you know, um, similarly, I think that there is a responsibility that uh, the Crown has uh, to acknowledge uh, this this family to acknowledge that they're. Um, those that came before them 
uh, really, really um, uh, devastated our people, uh, devastated our cultures, devastated our languages. And uh, there's, you know, there's no escaping that for us. Uh, you know, this is an event that people are going to uh, experience with the passing of the, the, the monarch from one person to the next as the queen passes away, the late queen passes away. Uh, and we've got a new king, you know, and, and immediately. Uh, uh, and, uh, and this time will pass and there will be a king in place. But for indigenous peoples in our country, um, those memories are uh, just very, you know, some of them are not even on the surface. Uh, some of them are above the surface. You can they're visible, you know, on a daily basis. You can see the pain and and agony that has been caused uh, Indigenous people because of the treatment. Um, and then, you know, uh, after the crown, uh, the British crown didn't have such a um, a huge impact in the daily life. The governments that have represented that power and authority have continued with policies that have been absolutely uh, terrible, grotesque policies that deliberately separate indigenous peoples from their lands and and turn us on each other and and uh, make enemies of families you know and uh, brothers and sisters uh, intentionally uh, turning us um, against each other and so there needs to be some reconciliation i think from the family i i really look forward to and and i hope that um, Adam, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go to break, uh, but appreciate this overview, this introduction to our show today. Folks, we're talking about British royalty and its impact on Indigenous people. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Japanese anime and manga are known for their distinctive artistic styles, often depicting characters with big eyes and exaggerated cuteness. Now, Native artists are blending those styles with artwork from their own traditions. We're talking about the intersection of Japanese anime and Native art on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're taking a look back at the tenure of Queen Elizabeth, the history of the British monarchy, and the relationship the royal family has with indigenous people. You can also call in with your comments or questions. That number is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. Tell us what you think of the British royal family. And let's gain another indigenous perspective on the British monarchy. Joining us from the Bronx in New York is Dr. Natasha Lightfoot. She is a professor of history at Columbia University. Dr. Lightfoot, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Lightfoot, it's great to have you. And please um, share with our listeners your family's connection to the islands of both Antigua and Barbuda. So... Um, Actually, the first generation, I'm in the first generation of my family to be born in the United States. Um, all of my family, from my parents um, going back, 
um, descend from enslaved people in various islands of the British-held Caribbean. And um, on my mother's side, it's basically exclusive to the islands of Antigua and Barbuda. My father's side, actually, he was born in Antigua, and his father was, but his mother was born in Dominica, and her mother was born in Montserrat, and his grandfather on his father's side was born in Barbados. So we've got a number of different British colonial possessions in the Caribbean in my family tree, and they all share the same uh, legacy of extractive colonialism, the theft of land, of human resources from from West Africa, enslavement, and persistent chronic underdevelopment uh, right up until the 20th century when the independence processes began for the Caribbean islands under the British Empire. I want to ask you, other islands there in the Caribbean with ties to Britain, do they also share in, uh, in the effects of this imperialism that you're describing there in Antigua Absolutely. and Barbuda? Yes. Um, currently, uh, similar to what was happening under the period where slavery and colonialism were at their height, um, and there was a singular industry of commercial crop agriculture that was about cash crops rather than you know, subsistence agriculture as, pra- as practiced by um, the indigenous people to those islands that were um, there before the British arrival. There was, you know, sugar was, the, was king, essentially. And that was the singular form of economic output for most of these islands. And when the price in the world economy fluctuated, the ability to feed oneself also fluctuated. So wages and, you know, the standard of living rose and fell on where sugar did in the world marketplace. Now these islands have turned their rolling sugar fields into golf, um, you know, into golf courses because they are now tourist economies. And, you know, they've turned their beachfronts into, you know, sites for, for tourists to play. Um, and so now the singular economic engine for most of the region of the Caribbean is tourism, and there's still the same kind of economic dependency on first world, um, you know, economic um, infusions of cash through their visits um, so Dr. to make Lightfoot. these islands solvent. Okay. Um, all right. So, so my next question, I mean, here we are, uh, while so many people across the world today are mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth, how do you feel? What's your response? Well, um, I certainly think it's a moment um, to really reckon with the violent legacy of British colonialism because the Queen, um, going back to that really great phrase that um, Adam Olson raised of sort of, you know, a fiction, but still having a function. The, the queen and the monarchy represented the sort of, you know, the symbolic head of an empire that really had material consequences. It functioned to, um, you know, take all that was profitable and reroute it to the enrichment of the United Kingdom. And so these islands today face economic insecurity, climate insecurity. They're vulnerable in so many ways. 
And, you know, for Antigua and Barbuda specifically, the islands that my, you know, family call home, they've been independent for 41 years, preceded by 350 years of British colonialism. So the imbalance is huge. It is very clear that, you know, for much of the existence of um, Antigua and Barbuda's presence in the world economy, it was really existing in, you know, for the profit of the British. And so managing their affairs for the last four decades has been an uphill battle uh, because there hasn't been as many resources for them to be able um, to function in the same way that, you know, comparatively speaking, um, the United Kingdom has the certain types of resources that are unlimited practically at its disposal to take care of its own affairs in, you know, very different fashion. And it sits right on top of, you know, not just Antigua and Barbuda, but these, you know, several countries around the world that are struggling now. And, you know, we all know the old adage that the sun never set on the British Empire. So this is a global phenomenon. Many places Certainly. in the world are touched by this. Dr. Lightfoot, um, any talk of, of reparations uh, from the crown for the islands and all of this struggle? It's, it's a huge, um, you know, conversation politically, and there's a formal movement that has already been in, in motion for the last, uh, I would say, 10 to 12 years on a formal level, but certainly it's been a conversation for decades among um, you know, a lot of different political leaders um, for different segments of Caribbean societies. Um, so the, the mo I would say the formal reparations movement started by CARICOM, which is the grouping of Commonwealth Caribbean nations that were under the British Empire. They, 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 they formed a secretariat for reparations um, in 2013, um, and you know, the conversation was happening, I would say, even well before that, um, going back to 2007, when the British had this big sort of celebration for its ending of the slave trade that it started, um, because 2007 was the 200th anniversary of the legal end to the British slave trade. Again, they're very congratulatory for the things that they think are humanitarian, but again, it, it sanitizes the legacy of what came before it. Right. Reparations has had a real rising swell of interest from the CARICOM movement, sort of, you know, kind of flooding into general, you know, discussion in Caribbean society among all kinds of people. Just noticing that much of the condition of the Caribbean now is intimately tied to what came before the extractive colonialism that I'm talking about. And so that. They, that the monarchy ought to apologize and recognize that much of its riches, you know, that there's not, that there's no way to dissociate that with the violence, the bloodshed, the land theft that was happening in the colonized world. Dr. Lightfoot, I, I know you have a limited time today, so I want to thank you for, for being able to take the time and joining us today and giving us that uh, information regarding, again, the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And they're down there in the Caribbean islands. Uh, we're getting that perspective as well as uh, from folks up in Canada. Thank you again, Dr. Lightfoot. 
Our next guest is joining us from Toronto, Ontario, Delia Opikaku. She is a barrister, a solicitor, and the first Indigenous woman called to the bar in the provinces of Ontario and Saskatchewan. She is Cree from the Canoe Lake First Nation. Delia, welcome to our show. Thank you. Well, Delia, I, I want to ask you, um, what are your initial thoughts now with the Queen's passing? My initial thoughts about the Queen uh, passing is that uh, uh, she certainly served a long time, uh, but there's been changes uh, with respect to uh, our treaty rights while she was uh, on the throne. In that uh, before 1982, when there was patriation of the Constitution, it used to be uh, we were governed under the Constitution, uh, 1867, uh, which was passed in the British uh, Parliament. And so, for instance, we, uh, with uh, court actions, we continue, and we still do, but at the time we were uh, suing on behalf of, uh, against the Crown uh, 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 in right of uh, England, but now we sue on uh, uh, the Crown uh, in the right of Canada because there was a major, uh, uh, major legislative or constitutional um, amendment to allow Canada to now govern itself starting in 1982, uh, and therefore uh, uh, she became more of a symbol in Canada. Uh, she was, uh, although many of my elders who, are, who had treaties, uh, most of those treaties were uh, signed on behalf of whichever uh, uh, sitting monarch was, for instance, many of the, uh, I come from the province of Saskatchewan, which is just above Montana, and I belong to the Treaty Number 10, uh, the Prairie Treaties. Uh, uh, we, in my case, uh, the treaty was signed with uh, King Edward in 1906, whereas many of the other uh, uh, treaties that were signed were signed with Queen Victoria. Uh, and we were promised that we would be able to maintain our way of life, that we would get economic assistance, we would be able to have uh, uh, certain monies, uh, which we call annuities, given to us because of the consideration that we gave up uh, uh, some parts of our land. According to our elders, we were only sharing. We were not extinguishing our rights. and But what happened was... Uh, the Crown uh, in right of Great Britain passed the Indian Act, which governed all of our lands and us as human beings, uh, those of us who are considered status Indians, and took complete control over our lives, our lands, our resources. Uh, the Minister of Indian Affairs uh, had total power, unlike in the United States, where, United States where you have a domestic sovereignty, where they do retain some some sovereignty. We didn't have that. Uh, it's only now since 1982 when the uh, Constitution Act of 1982 enshrined the protection and enforcement of treaty rights that we started to have uh, uh, more power. The Supreme Court of Canada after 1982 started to interpret it uh, and enforce treaty rights. Our treaty rights were completely taken over by the Indian Act and were not recognized, were not respected. Uh, 
the only treaty rights that used to be go into court was related to hunting and fishing and shopping. Um, nothing to do with our lands because the Crown had taken it over completely. Now we're able to do that. We, uh, I work in the land claims area. And we sue Canada for any illegal activities that have occurred. And we now have more power under the Constitution of 1982. What that means in reality with the monarch is she is only just a symbol. And so for me, uh, she died. I mean, it's great that she uh, she was a grandmother and uh, uh, she's an elder. Uh, and so I respect her for that. She had a long life. Uh, but in terms of her powers, uh, they're very limited. Okay, so limited power, and um, now that King Charles III uh, has the throne, what what going forward with regard to enforcing treaty rights? Um, are, are are you are you looking at, at at King Charles now and the Crown with regard to to how treaty rights are enforced? Are you really focusing more of your efforts on um, current leadership there in Canada, the Prime Minister, and other parties? Uh, we're currently focusing more with the Prime Minister. Um, we've adopted, Canada has adopted the United Nations Declaration of uh, Indigenous People, which recognize our sovereignty. And so there's going to be major changes. All of the legislation uh, uh, that deals with Indigenous rights have to be reviewed. Um, uh, and we hope change to allow for our sovereignty so that our uh, our First Nations will have to uh, be able to pass laws according to their own traditions as much as possible, recognizing that we're in a, in a modern era, uh, and so some things would not, uh, should not be attached. For instance, the reserves, the reservations. Uh, but going forward with King Charles, I would, uh, they're, they're very objective, they're very neutral on everything. But one of the great things that did happen is that uh, as as uh, Mr. Olson mentioned in in the province, in each of the provinces, uh, there's a lieutenant governor that uh, represents uh, the Queen. Uh, federally, we have the Governor General, and she's Inuit. That uh, she's uh, Indigenous herself, and she's got the she she can speak directly to to uh, to King Charles, and we hope that. Um, he, King Charles has been active in some areas, for instance, the environment. He even say, stated something about how climate change, that uh, the uh, views and knowledge of uh, indigenous people to the land and resources should be respected and should be utilized. I hope that he's more active to pressure the government to, uh, uh, to re for reparations and also for uh, uh, pursuing... Uh, uh, pursue uh, settling, reconciling with indigenous people. Uh, right now, if you have any differences with the crowd, in most cases, you have to uh, uh, sue them. Uh, even though the Supreme Court of Canada has say, stated it would be so much better if uh, if they could negotiate. Uh, it's very adversarial here in Canada because I know from um, being a lawyer for a long time, for instance, on fishing rights in the uh, Washington area, state area, the, your Justice Department actually has initiated court action to to, uh, to act as a trustee to protect uh, certain rights. That has never happened here. That our Justice 
Department is very adversarial against our own rights. And the, and, and the Prime Minister, when he took over as the Prime Minister up here, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau has written to the ministers for each of the uh, ca- cabinet positions to try to reconcile as much as possible, uh, as opposed to uh, dragging a case through court. Some of the court cases that uh, that that, that, pers- that proceed take so many years. Like uh, our elders pass away because most of our history is. Uh, 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 indigenous history is oral history, so our elders are very important in being, in, for instance, interpreting up the rights. Uh, there was a major case here in Ontario called... Uh, Delia, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are going to have to take another break, but folks, please give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE if you'd like to get on this conversation. Again, we're talking about the British monarchy. We'll be right back. Stay with us. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988. 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free, confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the British monarchy's past and future relationship with indigenous people. You can still join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Or you can carry your thoughts and questions on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Negan Sinclair. He is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. He is Anishinaabe. Negan, welcome back to the show. Bonjour. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, Negan, we're hearing, uh, hearing a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different thoughts from Indigenous folks. And uh, what are your criticisms or praise on Queen Elizabeth's 70-year-long reign? Well, um, I think your previous guest, uh, as I just heard the last tail end of that interview, uh, did an excellent job overviewing the complicated relationship Indigenous peoples uh, north of the medicine line uh, think of the Queen. I mean, we have a very complicated relationship uh, because on one level we respect a strong woman and a strong uh, female leader who's loyal to their family. But at the same time, uh, this queen, who ruled for seven years, ruled over some of the most brutal and uh, draconian and violent uh, policies and procedures that have operated against Indigenous peoples in this country. Uh, the residential school system, the Indian Act, the theft of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of acres of Indigenous peoples' land and resources. And then on top of that, just the trampling on Indigenous rights that Canada has run roughshod over with for decades. The fact is that this monarch did nothing, and during 22 national visits, often would use this as a photo opportunity to uh, show that she was inclusive or show that she was interested. And in fact, she would often say that when Indigenous peoples would ask her. And during every single one of her stops in Indigenous communities, uh, the Indigenous peoples would say, hey, you know, why is it that we're in such dire poverty, but your subjects, Canadians, 
have benefited so greatly from the theft of our lands and what are you going to do about it? And, and she would constantly say, well, you know, I will mention this to the prime minister. I will do something about this or, or I'll, I'll, you know, I'm dedicated to your survival as my subjects or whatever she said. And uh, nothing changed. In fact, things got worse. And in many, many communities, they are the worst they've ever been now. Oil water advisories, suicide epidemics, and the epidemic of child welfare in our community. And so it's not to put all of that on the monarch, because people would say, oh, the monarch is a symbolic position. But when you have the ear of the prime minister, when, you have the, when you're the constitutional head of a country, and you stand idly by to watch those who are suffering, uh, and you do nothing about it, or very little. Uh, mm-hmm. There's many things that that monarch could have done, uh, and you know, she did do a few things here and there. And I'm free to talk about that if you want. But generally, okay. well, actually, she was ambivalent. Okay, and, and yeah. So Negan, I'm sorry. Let's talk about now that that King Charles um, wears the crown and going forward, because you're saying that um, Queen Elizabeth she could have done so much more. Uh, you know, these photo opportunities and things like that. So what can King Charles do now to to win more confidence among Indigenous peoples in Canada? King Charles cannot con- continue a legacy of ambivalence that her mother began, that his mother began, uh, where we're used for opportunities to represent the crown or the monarchy in particular ways. And so that, that, you know, King Charles has to take it upon himself to do some things of what your previous interview said. You know, his work on climate change is important. His work on advocating for human rights is important. His work on advocating for a more modern monarchy is important. Uh, The fact is that, you know, King Charles has to continue some of that in that direction, because if he doesn't, then he'll be the same ambivalent monarch watching us suffer with a, a draconian state or a, a very difficult situation with uh, the government in Canada. And while there has been some very significant changes made in Canada, the implementation of Indigenous rights nationally, for example, um, we need a monarch that will be able to advocate and be, be, be a part of a country. Um, and I think in some ways you're seeing that change. As mentioned before, we have our first Indigenous Governor-General, which is the representative of the, the Queen representative of the crown in the country, uh, appointing competent, uh, confident, and also uh, Indigenous or non-Indigenous peoples who are invested in the success of Indigenous peoples, and the upholding of those treaties, the honors honoring of those treaties the crown signed over 150 years ago, that is what we want uh, as Indigenous peoples of the monarchy. Okay. And Negan, so, you know, down here in, in the States, um, you know, we, we look at, at the British monarchy and we kind of scratch our heads, right? Because uh, the United States is a republic and that's really uh, kind of the trend here throughout the 20th century is to move away from monarchies. And a lot of folks just look at the royal family, they look at the British monarchy and they just see this outdated model of imperialism and just something that just kind of just doesn't fit in the, in the modern world. This whole idea of a monarch, a ruler that wears a crown and people bow to that person. And, uh, you know, they're, they're like this higher class of, of person. It just goes against the grain of so much of what we think of, especially now in the era of social justice. So what are the thoughts there among Indigenous people of just doing away with the monarchy? Because that is definitely a, a conversation that was, was started, you know, a few years ago. And I think that's going to continue going forward now with with King Charles. What's the thought there? I think if Americans think that they are so distanced from the monarchy, I think they're quite deluded. 
uh, <laughs> I think that the, <laughs> the monarchy for the United States is things like Hollywood or things like the 1% or things like billionaires like who own corporations and uh, give opinions on various issues and everybody falls. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I think I totally, I'm sorry, real quick. I I totally agree with you. You're right. We certainly have our royalty in this family, but we're not told to bow to those people in the way that subjects of the crown are. So I'm sorry. I just want to put that in. I mean, I guess, (laughs) yeah, of course. I I would (laughs) say that some of that 1% might say things otherwise, but anyways. uh, Okay. (laughs) Being said, uh, the Absolutely. You know, there there was a war in 1783 in the United States for a reason in the separation from the British monarchy. Um, the reason why Indigenous peoples care so deeply about the crown here in Canada is because we share our relationships not with the government of Canada, but with the monarch. Every time we have to go to the Supreme Court to argue for Indigenous rights, for our land claims, for anything involving the state in this country... Uh, we have to argue with the Crown. We don't argue with the Government of Canada. We argue that the Crown made promises and has obligations to us under treaty, and if those aren't, aren't fulfilled, then Canada is violating what's called the honour of the Crown. And so our relationships are distinctly with the Crown, and so the reason why the Crown matters is because if Canada, for example, were to remove the Crown of the monarchy as the constitutional head of this country, Legally, and I don't think Canada's ready for this or even interested in this conversation, but legally all of the land in Canada would revert back to Indigenous hands because our, uh, back in 1763, King George III, uh, just before the American Revolutionary War, announced that all of the land in North America would be his. That sparked the Revolutionary War, but it also sparked the treaty process here uh, across North America and sparked the treaty process in Canada, which settled most of that land in the eyes of British uh, uh, rulers in any way. Well, that's certainly a really interesting twist there, Negan. And um, thank you for, for all that insight and that overview. We do have one more guest on our show today. Joining us from Cleveland, Ohio, is Nancy Kelsey. She is a columnist for Cleveland.com. She is a Nishinabe of Little River Band of Ottawa Indians and Indigenous Salvadoran. Nancy, welcome to the show and appreciate your patience. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, having me. I've obviously been in esteemed company with all of the folks you've had on to this point, yeah. Absolutely. Then uh, I want to ask you, you wrote a column for the Cleveland Plain Dealer calling Queen Elizabeth the modern face of colon- uh, excuse me, colonization and saying she doesn't deserve the words, the world's exaltation. Um, why did you write that? Yeah, so when I first heard the news about uh, the Queen's passing and saw the media coverage of it, which I think has tapered out a little bit and been a little more comprehensive since then, I saw a lot of um, what I would say is the reaction of European, uh, American, European folks, British folks, um, lamenting the loss of a great leader. And so my feeling was there's another perspective here for Indigenous people who are, even us in, you know, the United States colonized um, so long ago by by Britain in the, and now dealing with these systems of oppression. There's another perspective here that I thought wasn't being considered, so that really prompted me to want to uh, lend a voice 
in my column. And what's been the reaction to your column? Oh, it has been very interesting. So I, I've gotten some folks who really sympathize um, Native and not um, with the position that I was taking that there's um, about what the monarchy represents and what her passing represents to Indigenous people. There's, But there's also been a really vocal majority um, that I think wants folks like me to check their feelings um, and not really express them, whether it's because it's too soon after her death or she was a great leader in spite of British colonization. But there's been this expectation that, and I don't think it's unique to this experience, that people of color really um, don't express those opinions so as not to upset the status quo. And for me, I'm, my position has been I, I've had to do that my my whole life as a Clevelander in the land of Chief Wahoo. This was not going to be that time for me. Nancy, when we do shows like this, we, we talk about colonialism, we talk about oppression. Uh, at the heart of it all is healing. And I always think to myself, okay, so what's the next step in, in, in terms of healing? Obviously, people are upset. Uh, they have issues, uh, like you say. But um, do you think going forward, uh, is this like a is this a broken model or, or is there are you hopeful? Is it possible that the British monarchy can reconcile these relationships with people from their foreign colonies and and fix what has been done? I, I think so. But um, I, I think one of the earlier guests that you had on touched on this really well um, and really likened it to the experience of the Pope coming to Canada earlier this year. And so I, in what we saw there in a public apology is great on paper, and, but these systems of oppression still exist. So I think, you know, using the platform going forward, King Charles um, has the ear of many um, in the world and many leaders in the world, and it would be a missed opportunity to try not to reconcile some of the um, legacies of British imperialism. And to me, anything short of advocating for land back, resources back, is an empty gesture. What are your thoughts? Like I, I, I spoke with Negan earlier uh, about the nature of royalty and some of this this protocol and this decorum that's observed with the bowing and the obedience that people should should display towards the crown. And of course, that was, uh, you know, the basis of a lot of the conflict that we saw with Meghan Markle earlier. She kind of went over there, uh, jumped the pond and said, hey, we're Americans. We do things differently. She was heavily criticized uh, by some, but by others, she was praised as as a real leader and uh, a voice of social justice. What's your thought on that? So uh, earlier you had uh, remarked about how it's baffling to Americans, and I would say I am in that group as well, who finds uh, those kinds of gestures um, to be odd. And I know they're a nod to the um, British tradition and how, how things have been done. But, um, yeah, for, for myself, I, I do look at that and kind of in wonder and ask myself why that uh, still exists today and why the monarchy still exists today i i just don't see the necessity for it and even if you know it's a tradition of um british british customs i don't what purpose does it serve 
What is the likelihood in your mind of, of reparations at some point? I mean, so much criticism, so many demands have been made of the Catholic Church and uh, other governments. Is it, is it time for the British monarchy to answer to these voices that are demanding more than just apologies? I certainly think so, and I think the folks that you had on earlier that are of um, our Canadian and First Nations um, really have a unique voice in all of this. So I, I would defer to what the Indigenous people um, who are still um, considered subjects of the Crown, and I'm using air quotes as I say that, um, what that means to them. But I do think there's a long legacy beyond that, even for those of us um, in this part of Turtle Island who um, are not necessarily in the same boat, but are still dealing with those systems of oppression that resulted from British imperialism. But I'm not optimistic. Um, and I hate to sound like a, a, a pessimist here, but I'm not optimistic that we're going to see much change um, just based on um, the experiences of what we're seeing folks in Canada having to deal with with uh, treaty rights. We haven't seen much advocacy from um, the monarchy before. I'm not optimistic that's going to change. Well, folks, this has been a, a really, really interesting hour, an insightful conversation, learning about the British monarchy and its history and its relationships with indigenous peoples, not only in Canada, not only in the Caribbean islands, but also other parts of the world. And again, I just can't get over that earlier comment that the sun never sets on the British Empire and uh, a relationship of both fiction and function. Well, I'd like to thank all of our guests on the show today for a really informative discussion on the British monarchy. Please join us again tomorrow as we take a look at Native artists who mix their indigenous traditions with styles associated with Japanese anime. I'm Sean Spruce, your host. Thank you for listening. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.